The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone on our solstice evening. And uh, once a quarter, we meet on Sunday morning. We have a regular practice group like this on Sunday morning at 1030. But once a quarter, we do the refuges and precepts. It's a Buddhist ritual that I find very useful. It's one of the few traditional things that we do at the center. And so usually on Sunday night, I just we don't actually do the recitation that we do on Sunday morning. But I just remind people, because it's such a practical thing to take up. You can actually take it up every day. I mean, it's kind of amazing that we don't actively reflect on, I mean, some of us do some of the time, but to make it a regular part of our our life to reflect on, well, what is there that's actually trustworthy in my life? In Buddhism, they define faith as that which you can put your heart on, rest your heart on. But it's not something out there, right? If it's going to be a real refuge, actually, practically a refuge, it has to already be here and now, right? So what is that here and now that is trustworthy? Or what values can we count on? What underlying values? So I want to talk about this a little bit in terms of how the Buddha talked about it. One way to think about the whole path of awakening, this you know, cultivation of mindful awareness, is as a kind of internal power. When we're mindfully aware, when the quality of awareness is steady and clear, fearless, it has this capacity to burn away whatever it is that doesn't line up with like what leads to happiness. You can imagine our mind, our heart, our life being sort of layers of layer, layers of inertia, like bad habit energy, you know, that exists because we're in the habit of thinking this way or we're in the habit of viewing things this way, we're in the habit of acting in this way. And that habit energy of the way I act, the way I think, the way I understand, it exists and it gets reinforced in a funny way because it already exists. You know, it got set in motion, maybe through our culture or who knows all the different ways that our habit energies have gotten set in motion. But clearly, we all have habit energy. It has some momentum. And then to whatever degree we just allow that momentum to continue on. So when some habit arises in me to be defensive or to be closed down or to be whatever my habit energy might be, whenever I take that tendency personally, it's like I'm laying down another layer. It's another layer of momentum. You kind of get ossified so that we can't even... It's harder and harder in a way to get out of our habits, to just become who we are because that's how we've been. That's why now that I'm getting close where I can actually see 60s, they're out there. (laughs) Um, You know, when we were young, though, 
we used to look at older people and we'd notice this about older people, like how ossified their views were, just their way, you know, stuck to routines. Remember how we used to think of our parents or our grandparents? And Well, that, that happens to all of us. And the way we stay youthful in the deepest sense is when we don't allow the mind to get ossified by getting identified, uh, well, this is just who I am, this is just what I do, this is just how I see things. So it's good to, and the, I mean, we can change it up, you know, change our routines, but the real way, of course, is just not to get identified. So even if we do something over and over again, it's fresh. It's not a habit energy that's acting in itself out blindly or unconsciously, but we're really there. It's a conscious choice, an intention that the mind is aware of. So if you, like, you know, if your habit is to overeat or to watch too much TV, I mean, a not-so-wholesome habit, it's better to be really there, 100% awake, when you do that bad thing, than it is to do it unconsciously, Right? So if you're going to do something unskillful, do it in full awareness. Be, be really alive and awake that this is what's happening, this is what I'm choosing to do, in full light of whatever I understand the consequences to be, having done something similar in the past. But that's not how we like to do our bad habits. <laughs> In a funny way, we don't really want to be there when the choice is made. You know, I mean, we want whatever we think the result will be from indulging in whatever we're going to indulge in. So anyway, we have this particular tool. It's really what the whole path that the Buddha laid out is all about. We're kind of <clears throat> cultivating this stability of mind, this clarity. We call it samadhi, right, right concentration, or this steadiness, clarity, fearlessness, quality of attention. It, and it, it comes with this wholesome desire in the mind to want to see things as they are. And we're not talking about philosophically seeing things as they are. We're talking about a more immediate, intimate, direct knowing of experience. And a kind of knowing that's not affected by our ossified beliefs, our institutionalized beliefs, you know, that we've been, our sort of cultural indoctrination. So what is it to see breathing in, or tonight like we were training the mind to be sensitive to the heart center, right? So we're just breathing in and taking that opportunity to know, notice, oh, it's like this now. And then breathing out, taking that opportunity to notice the heart's like this now. And then learning to sustain that. But it has nothing to do with what I think the heart is or what it should be. It's a much more immediate, direct feeling. We're training the mind to actually feel the heart as it actually is. So if it's numb, if it's hard, if it's beautifully radiant, whatever it is, we just learn how to be truthful about it being this way now. And it's a subjective experience. We're not saying like, what's the truth for everybody right now? Just subjectively, as I'm breathing in, 
how does it feel right now? Subjectively, as I'm breathing out, how does it feel right now? Can we get interested in that level of the truth? Not conceptual truth, but the direct immediate. Like when we say being present now, you know, we say there's a heart or mind and body now. That's what it means to be a human being. We have this thing we call the mind or heart. We have this thing we call the body. So what is the truth of that? And see, we don't need anybody to tell us or it doesn't have to align with what the Buddha said because before we say anything, the truth of the body and mind or the truth of the present moment, right? it's already immediately available. But it's, we have to sort of burn through the tendency to want to describe it in the way we think it should be described. But do you need to say something for you to have the truth of how it is right now? No, we don't need to say anything because it's right here. This is what it means to be a human being. It's so nice. It's actually a kind of liberation not to have to revert to philosophy, like to know what it is to be a human being. Is there anybody right now who doesn't know what it is to be a human being? Like the most challenging question, it's, the answer is this. It's like this, to be a human being. And it's not more complicated than that. This is what it's like to be a human being. Or this is what it's like to have a mind and a body. Right now, this is it. So we cultivate this kind of mindfulness, this uh, quality of awareness that isn't confused by thought or concept and that is interested in this immediate truth. In Buddhism, we call it dharma or dhamma, the way it is. Not conceptually the way it is, but immediately, directly the way it is. And can sustain, like not forget. So it's a continuity of that mindful awareness. We're not forgetting. It's not enough to just sort of touch it in one moment. But why can't this attention, this awareness, why can't it sustain its interest in this non-conceptual reality, let's call it? So in Buddhism we talk, or in terms of the path, in Buddhism we talk about three kinds of purification. So what we do with that awareness. When we're in the immediate present, then we purify our actions in the world. Right. So when I'm in this more direct and immediate sensing, right? I've got this sensitive heart that just directly, immediately senses. What does it sense? Well, it just senses what it feels. And I'm interacting with somebody. I'm at work or I'm shopping or I'm interacting with my relatives at Christmas or whatever it might be. But to some degree, we've cultivated some continuity of, a, of mindfulness, of, a, of this wise awareness. And so we're sensitive, we're noticing the sensitive heart, this like sounding board of our life. And we notice how it purifies our actions in the world. It's really hard to be a jerk when you're cultivating this ongoing radical sensitivity to your heart. Try it. Try being unskillful or, and even if you end up, able to be unskillful, you'll 
deeply learn from being unskillful. So it would be really hard for you to be unskillful in the same way next time because you were really there feeling what it feels like to be unskillful. And it's not about the thought, I'm a really bad person, I should never do that again. That might come later, but it's totally unnecessary because what came earlier was like you being a jerk, like putting somebody down. You know how it is. Sometimes when we're really hurting, if we're not clearly aware, somehow it just makes sense to hurt somebody else. Have you noticed that? Like when we're in the dumps, we sort of want other people to be in the dumps. Or, But if there's some degree of mindfulness, we'll notice that. So we use, this whole path is about using that steady presence to purify our actions. What we do, what we speak or say, and even how we think about somebody, about a situation, about ourselves. Simply by being aware, it purifies, it burns away bad action, in a sense. And then we use this light of awareness to also purify the mind. So again, we talk about three kinds of purifications. You can think of this in terms of gross, between gross and subtle, and subtle. So what's most gross, and gross not in a negative sense, just in a dense sense, right? So the most gross part of our life is our interactions with other people and our interactions with our external environment, right? And we want to learn to bring awareness, the steady mindful presence to that so that you'll just find it harder and harder to be unskillful when you're aware. And you'll see people who tend to be really unskillful tend to be really unaware. And people who you know who tend to be really skillful tend to be really awake, really present. Now, there are some people who grew up in a particular environment and tend to be really skillful, but they're just not aware. They're not awake. So their skillfulness is just a habit that they learned from their particular upbringing. And they could have just as well been taught to be a bad person or a, you know, an unskillful person, but they were fortunate enough to have some good training until the next you know, influence comes their way. And then they'll be vulnerable to new training, new conditioning. So we purify our actions. Then we use the same mindful awareness, that same steady, fearless presence to take responsibility, not for our actions out in the world, but for the actions within our own little ecosystem we call our heart and mind, right? Because there's this whole inner environment of my mental activity, my emotional mental activity. And of course, it affects my actions, but in a way it has its own place, own location, right? This swirl of my mental activity. And so this is more subtle than paying attention to our relationship to what's happening around us. Now we're learning how to pay attention to this internal environment, the different mental qualities that are there with each of one, each one with their own particular momentum, right? Each particular mental quality in a sense has its own little trajectory. We have a little wave of depressiveness moving through the heart and mind or 
excitement, a little joy, a little jealousy, a little gratitude, a little hatred. You know, they're just... And now we're adding an ingredient that purifies the mind, which is this light bulb of awareness, this wise attention. Oh, it's like this. All of this mental activity, this emotional mental activity is being known. Right? We even use that phrase sometimes in our meditation. Oh, thinking's like this. Judging is like this. Fantasizing's like this. Wanting this to be over is like this. Hatred is like this. Right? So it's a one of the essential qualities of mindful awareness is it's not judging. It's just like a mirror. It's just reflecting. Now it's like this. This is what makes it such a powerful purifying force is the non-judging nature of the awareness itself. See, we think I have to judge things, hate things that are bad in order to make them go away. But actually, we just have to see it honestly. If we see the mind spinning, like now we're talking about the mental activity, mental emotional activity, if we see it honestly and clearly, see, like I said, see if you can sustain negative, let's just call it for simplicity, negative thinking. See if you can sustain negative, unskillful mental activity in complete awareness. It's like, if we had a way, I would bet you a million dollars you can't do it. Right? Because that's what seems to be true in my life, in my own practice. And I bet a lot of people, maybe in the discussion time, you can share from your own practice that when you become clearly aware in a non judging way, just wanting to see the mind, the activity of the mind as it actually is, it's hard to sustain thinking, thinking patterns that are self destructive or that lead to unskillful action. They tend to fall apart actually relatively quickly when the mind, when the mindfulness, that wise attention has some real momentum, some continuity. So it's not enough to, in a flash, notice that the mind is really rageful. What makes mindful awareness mindful awareness is the sustaining of it. This is why we have to practice. You know, we sit down and meditate. Because it's relatively easy for us to have a moment of being present, kind of that truthful presence, that honest presence. Oh, it's like this. But we almost immediately fall into some reactive habit, like I don't like the fact that it's like this, or I like the fact that it's like this and I want it to last. So we're already then, in just a moment after, in a reactive pattern. But to sustain that non-judging, that clear, that fearless interested, curious presence, that's, that takes some training. And, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to call that literally the most powerful thing in the world. It's, the, it's more powerful than anything. Like, for example, you think, well, if something were really powerful, it could get rid of injustice, you know, racial injustice, or the Middle East, the the hatred and the confusion and the sort of inertia of the problem in the Middle East, right? But actually, that's exactly 
what could possibly address these entrenched systemic places of suffering in our culture, in our world. If we could just get enough of the people involved in our, like in terms of racial injustice, you know, enough of the people like you and me to sustain this wise attention with their mind in all the places where prejudice and bias arise and see it as it actually is, those tendencies would get transformed. Now, we might not be able to get rid of the built-in biases that exist in our mind, but we could, because we see them as not being helpful, being unskillful, the cause for suffering, we could actually learn to be vigilant, to not forget, to want to pay attention so that we don't act out those conditioned biases that we all have, each of us in our own particular way. It literally is the most powerful thing in the world, paying attention in this steady way. So we purify our actions by being aware of our actions. We purify the qualities of our mind by being able to pay attention to something more subtle. And then even more subtle than the activity of our mind is what in the Buddhist tradition we call the view or the understanding of the mind. So this is like the basic qualities that are present in my mind. They're relatively easy to notice with awareness, right? Even people who don't ever formally practice mindfulness, some of those people you could ask, how are you feeling? <laughs> How's your mind doing? And they might be able to give you a relatively accurate, when prompted, they might be able to give you a relatively honest, accurate description of what qualities are in their mind. Well, I'm a little tight right now. You know, my heart's a little tight, closed down, or I'm feeling really full of love. Or I'm really jealous. You know, but they're aware that they're jealous, right? So it's not just that they're jealous, but there's some reflective knowing that there's jealousy in the mind and it's like this. That's different. But to be aware of the underlying view or understanding, that's very subtle. Like, for example, right now, whoever we are in the room right now, most of us, to some degree at least, are thinking or having the view that this experience is happening to me. But it's not like you're aware that you have that view, that I'm hearing Mark talk and I'm the one who's listening, or I'm here at Common Ground, I'm here at Common Ground, right? So we have a sense, or if you have an ache in your body, I'm feeling that ache, that ache is happening to me. Why is it happening? So all of us, to some degree, have this self-sense, the self-centered sense that this experience refers to me. The things that I'm knowing right now are being known by me, right? But we're unaware of the self-view that's operating just below the surface. It's there. I mean, I point it out and then you might notice, oh yeah, this, whatever this experience is for us, it does feel personal to me, right? Because it's happening to me, so... But it's so obvious we don't even think it's something to be aware of. Self-view isn't something we should be aware of because 
we take it for granted. So that's really the definition of this most subtle part of the mind. We take it for granted that it feels a little weird or self-conscious to even bring it into awareness. Like that this feels personal, right? But it does feel personal, and that's something that can be known by awareness. Because there are some times when we're in the activity of life where the mind naturally experiences a freedom from that self-view. You know, people call it like being in the flow of things or being in the groove of things or, you know, just getting lost in the experience, we say sometimes, right? So we have all kinds of cliches that just point to those moments where there was the activity of the mind and body. It's not like we were asleep, but it didn't feel personal. It's just like everything happening on its own. So we want to notice when it doesn't feel that way, we want to train the mind to be aware of what is that underlying view when it's there. Now that's the hardest thing to be aware of. It's really the practice of wisdom, right? Wisdom understands that the underlying view has all kinds of implications for the way the mind thinks and the way the mind acts in the world. So our path of practice, being mindful, is to be mindful of our actions and we purify our actions by being aware of them, being awake. And to be aware of the mind, the activity of the mind, and by doing that to purify the qualities of the mind. And to be aware of the underlying view, or the you could even say the underlying perspective. And in particular, self-view versus freedom from self-view. Now, it doesn't even, it's totally understandable if it doesn't even occur to the mind or it doesn't even seem conceivable to live my life, to be a parent, to be an employee, to be a person, and to be free of self-view. But it definitely is, right? Because people experience this. And the way isn't to try to be free of self-view, right? Because that's just a self-project. I, me, I want to live my life. I want to play one-on-one basketball without the sense of me doing it. Or I want to knit without the sense of me doing it. Or I want to give a talk without the sense of me doing it. So turning the transformation or the purification of view into self-project is how we reinforce self-view. The way we purify self-view is the same way we purify our actions and purify the mind. We pay attention in a non-judging way. So when there is a self-view, you know, and we're operating and now because we've been invited to, right, we've got the Buddha's instructions, pay attention to this subtle level of view. So now we're noticing when we, however subtle it is, we're noticing self-consciousness, right, as something happening in the moment. And we're happy to see it. We're not, even though it may be, feel a little tight, it's really good to notice it. Oh, this is what it feels like that this moment feels personal. It feels like this. And we're learning to be aware of it. We're not creating self-consciousness or that it feels personal. We're just noticing when it's that way that it's that way. Does that make sense?
and we're sustaining our attention in this non-judging way. And you'll notice, just like it's hard to be a bad person when you're clearly aware of your actions in a non-judging way, or it's hard to be obsessing in a really unskillful way when you're clearly aware that you're doing that, it's hard to sustain self-view when you're really clearly aware in this non-judging way that the mind is operating out of self-view. And the reason that all three of those things are true is they don't actually, being a jerk, obsessing in unskillful ways, and living your life from a self-centered view, don't actually align with the way things are. So the only way to sustain bad actions, unskillful thinking, wrong view, is to be unaware of it. This is sort of interesting. This is an interesting, like, Buddhist equivalent of sin, or being bad, or being an evildoer. It only exists because a person is not awake. You can't sustain. So if you see somebody who's acting in a really unskillful way, and maybe you intuit the quality of their mind is a mess, and their underlying view is very convoluted, you know, egocentric or whatever, the conclusion should be this great movement of compassion, like the person, this person is not seeing things clearly. If they saw things clearly, they wouldn't act that way, they wouldn't think that way, they wouldn't have that view. So the missing ingredient for us and for everybody is not seeing things as they are. Because when we cultivate that steady, relaxed, sustained, non-judging presence, the mind cannot sustain or the body-mind cannot sustain unskillful action, unskillful mental activity, and unskillful view. And like I said, it would be really nice if we got one of the wealthy Buddhists to, you know, put up million of dollar bet, you know, like who is, somebody did that with psychic, uh, with magic. I forget the person's name. Who is it? James Randy, James Randy put up, was it a million dollars? Yeah. Uh, about some, you know, anybody being able to prove they had this extrasensory power or perception or whatever. And uh, so far he hasn't had to pay out. So, you know, it's sort of like, prove that uh, some negative, unwholesome action, mental activity, view could be sustained even when there was sustained mindful awareness. Right? I like to think of it as the universal solvent of negativity. You know, in the same way that it's so amazing that water, if you haven't seen Someday, go see the Grand Canyon. It is so amazing that water did that. But it's amazing what nature can do given enough time. And it's the same thing with the nature of awareness. No matter how ossified our personality seems, no matter how difficult our life appears or just being a human being, I mean, we can get ourselves in pretty dark, heavy, deep places, you know, places that are hard 
just doesn't feel appropriate to be sensitive to. We just want to shut down, turn on the TV or drink or close down one way or another, go to sleep, because we just don't want to be in our life. So what this teaching is saying that that can get completely transformed. And the first step is the same as the last step. It's this cultivation. It's like turning the light on and then keeping it on. And if all we can manage is to be somewhat aware of our external activity in the world, we start there. But if there's enough subtlety in the awareness and we can be aware of our actions and aware of the mental activity, all the better. And if we can be aware of our actions and the activity of the mind and the more subtle view that the mind is operating out of, well then, really nothing can stop the purification or the transformation of the heart. Because all of the entanglements depend on unawareness. Because what awareness does, in a way, you know, you can think about the body, mind, heart, all being one knot. And that knot exists because of karma, because of whatever was set in motion in the past. And that knot is really just a microcosm of our society. It's also a knot made up of all of us knots, right? So we have all this sort of congealed, knotted energy. And the only and, and built into each knot is the intelligence of how to unwind, right? Because isn't it true that the knot itself, when you think about tying a knot with string or rope, how the knot is knotted is the information is right there in the knot itself, right? Does that make sense? So what the knot needs is this reflectiveness, right? This self-reflectiveness or a mirror that mirrors back the knottedness of the knot to the knot. Right? It's the knot that needs to know that it's a knot and how it's a knot. Right? <laughs> and that's what mindfulness does. It's like we're, we're a big knot all tangled up because of trauma, because of disappointment and betrayal and getting bumped in the head and stubbing our toes and being hungry and being cold and being hot and feeling alone and feeling overwhelmed. And thinking that it made sense to close down because of all of the ups and downs of life. And that's just what has made us knotted human beings. And what we're doing, you know, what the Buddha discovered is that if we train the mind to be this very beautiful mirror that simply reflects back to this thing we call me, the way it is, that everything unwinds. Absolutely everything unwinds. And it's inconceivable, actually, from the position of being a knotted human being for so long, it's really inconceivable to know what that unknotted experience is like. It's like there are examples of, you know, sitting in your kitchen for several hours doing some work, and then the refrigerator shuts off. You didn't even know the refrigerator was there buzzing, but it was and then it goes off, and it's like, oh, that feels nice. Now imagine you've been carrying like two tons on your back forever. So long that you don't even realize you have two tons on your back. And it's a really pokey backpack. 
you know, little <laughs> shards of glass and grinding into your shoulders. But it's been so long, you just don't realize it. And it's icy cold. I mean, you can just, you know, somebody who's an artist can do a nice little visual image for us. And then all at once or someday you realize you're carrying it. And then a little bit later with continued practice of not judging it, not judging the fact that you have this two-ton backpack on, you figure out you can just put it down. Right? And it's such an amazing moment when we experience the disentangling. And the thing is, even in the beginning stages of disentangling, the letting go, the mind intuits just in little glimpses that there's no end to the letting go. Like, oh, like even that little thing, like the refrigerator buzz going off, ah, oh, that it's a little bit like a free fall because we were, we didn't know it, but we were defending ourselves from that buzzing sound. And then the buzzing stops and we kind of go like this, oh. But with more and more practice, we realize I don't have to stop that ah, right? My whole life, this whole existence can be a free fall. Uh, the free fall of not defending, not clenching, not grasping. So in a way, that what often is said in the Buddhist tradition is this is a path of realizing the reality of non-grasping, like a free fall. Except we're not going to hit anything. It's just falling, but there's never anything to hit. Just the movement of all things. So this is our refuge, right? We take refuge in this cultivation of the mirror, mindful awareness that can reflect back, and we take refuge in the possibility of this unwinding or this unbinding, as one of our <clears throat> scholars and teachers in this tradition translates nibbana, nirvana, as the unbinding of the heart, the release or releasing of the heart. The Buddha calls this the unshakable release or the unshakable releasing of the heart. So it doesn't it make sense every morning or every time you sit at the very beginning of the set, you want to, even if your faith or confidence or your intuition is somewhat faint, it's still good to, like, even if you're not certain, why not open your mind to the possibility that this unshakable release is available for everybody and that I'm interested enough to check it out, right? It's not like blind belief where you're just, well, the Buddha said it's true, so it must be true. No, it's just like, does your own experience and your own study, hearing talks like this, does it resonate on some level that you're, interested enough to check it out. Hmm. Unconditional release of this heart. That sounds kind of nice. Right? Because anything that's tight, if we really get that it's tight, we intuitively get that it doesn't have to be tight. We may not be able to realize the not tightness, but knowing that it's tight is a step in the right direction. Why is it so tight? Does it have to be tight? So I'll leave it here. We have a little bit more than 10 minutes. 
be nice to just hear people's thoughts about your own experience with this purification of your actions, purification of your mind, purification of your view, or of course, any questions. And remember to point the mic right at your mouth. Ben, you want to start us off? Right behind you. Is it necessary to have a self-view to be alive? Well, that's a great thing to check out. Really? Because, no, because that's exactly what it seems, right? It's like, does the survival mechanism depend on self-view? Well, clearly, I mean, it seems that way psychologically to each of us when we look. Initially, it will seem like it is. But one of the great things about observing nature is you really see it's not. Because when you're out, you know, watching some deer or watching some whatever, you can really intuit, just sense, there's no self-view operating there. It's just nature. So do you need to have a self-view to take your hand off of a hot stove? No. It's just like built into the system. The self-view, like, you know, you know this, Ben, from some of your study that the cause of suffering in the traditional Buddhist, what the Buddha said about the cause, it's not just craving or it's not just the fact that we have desire, like the desire to move the hand away from a hot stove or the desire to put food in our mouth when we're hungry. The cause of suffering isn't that we have a desire to put food in our mouth. The cause of desire is personalizing, I mean, the cause of suffering is personalizing the desire. So there's the the desire to eat, and then what habit, neurotic habit does on top of that desire to eat is it constructs an idea that I want to eat. That's extra. You need the desire to eat, you need the desire to take your hand off the hot stove and the, the desire to do this, But those desires are already there. That's part of the natural system. What God added on to the natural system through language or who, you know, many causes and conditions is this concept, this very seductive concept, a little like a computer virus of personalizing everything. So we personalize fear, we personalize emotion, we personalize pain and pleasure. So then Pleasure seems like personal salvation, you know, like haagen It's like, seems like personally, somebody personally is getting something from eating haagen But is that true? It's like, how many times have we had a pleasant food treat? Is there anybody who's actually gotten anything in any lasting, meaningful way from all of the pleasant tastes and swallows that you've had? No, we're still left hungry, wanting more. How many loving experiences we've had, you know, intimate connections with another human being. And they're beautiful. I'm not saying they're not really beautiful and satisfying in some way, but we're fundamentally not different having had those experiences. We're still another human being who wants more, right? We still want more. So, This is the thing about personalizing it. All it sets in motion is this suffering of wanting more, needing more, being afraid of not having more. Then we're so afraid of death because we've constructed this person who needs stuff 
and all of a sudden death is facing us and it's a complete affront from all this habit energy of thinking, I'm the one who needs to live, I'm the one who needs to eat, I'm the one who needs love and affection. But it's all this additional layer, this unnecessary layer that can get burned away if we see it for what it is. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for the good question. Other thoughts that come to mind? Just raise your hand and we'll pass the mic. Yeah, over here. And feel free to say your name if you would. Ursa. Um, you got to have real close. Like this? Yeah, and point it. Okay, I've never had a mic. Yeah, it's a directional mic, so you got to actually point it at your mouth. I'm very aware that I'm aware. That <laughs> I have a mic in my, in my hand. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So my question is, um, you were talking about while well, you're talking about the million dollar question or whatever you mentioned. Um, I, I'm looking for a concrete example, uh, right now. And, um, I, as you were talking about it, I thought of a documentary I saw once about, a uh, psychology and there was a lady that had a fear of spiders, a phobia, and it was so strong that she could not even look at a picture of a spider. However, she was aware that it was just a picture. So I'd like to understand that she was aware. However, she couldn't um, disengage from the fear. Mm -hmm. Well, so, she hadn't yet disengaged from the fear, right? Because um, we can refrain from actions like she could probably train herself seeing the picture of the spider, you know, not to run away. So that's, she's purifying her action, right? Because she has enough awareness in that moment to realize, I don't need to run away, it's just a picture. But not enough awareness to um, purify the tightness that maybe she's experiencing in her body, and her mind, right? The fear. So the question is like, how would she reach that point? Yeah. And this is the question for all of us, because it may not be such an obvious phobia, but all of us are, have a phobia of pain and a strong attraction, a strong sense that I'll be saved if I get pleasant experience. Even though I've just explained to all of us a few moments ago that we've already, most of us have had a lot of pleasant experience in our life and we haven't really gotten anything from it. We still want more. And the promise is like when you think about, oh gosh, in an hour or so I'll be in bed. And that would be so nice to be done with Sunday. But we've been done with so many days. So why do we believe that promise? It will be nice for a while, you know, until the alarm rings or until we're too stiff to stay in bed and we want to get up and start moving again or something. But it doesn't seem that way when we're thinking about a favorite TV show we might be able to watch tonight or something in our refrigerator we might be able to eat, it really seems that I'll get something. In the same way that the spider seems like I'll lose something, like lose my safety. So we need to challenge that bluff, that idea in the mind. So, you know, in like psychological circles, what they might, a therapist might give that woman to do is a slow, steady desensitization of that image of the spider. So, so maybe she can handle five seconds of looking at the spider or 
Maybe she can stand looking at the spider from 15 feet away, and then next week, 10 feet away, and, and then maybe eventually just really being with that spider, the picture of the spider for a while, and then just knowing that there's an actual spider in the other room, right? And then just peeking around the door, and then sitting in the room with the spider that's up in the corner, and then maybe even someday touching a spider, right? So, and what's actually happening in that process is the mind is purifying itself on these three levels. It's learning to restrain the thought, I have to bolt. Oh, no, actually, I don't have to run, right? So it's purifying its actions. And then eventually she'll learn like, oh, it really matters, like the photos here, but I can like, you know, when we look at something, you know, I can see Jeremy here, but there's a way of me looking at Jeremy without the concept of Jeremy. See, if Jeremy comes up like dangerous spider, then actually what I'm looking at, I'm not really looking at anything. It's just the concept that's dangerous. That can hurt me. Not so much in the case of Jeremy, but, you know, but we can have a different thing. Like, oh, yeah, nice guy. And, uh, but, but we can just go to the visual experience. It's just seeing, right? And we can know, because it's a photograph, that that's safe. Or that, you know, just seeing. And so there's different ways to perceive the experience. We think, well, there's just the way I'm perceiving it. That's the only way to perceive it. But there's many perceptions we can have about the spider. We could perceive like part of what comes up when we see the spider is the story of being a little girl and being bitten and getting a huge wealth that was so painful. Or we can, when we see the spider, we can um, remember that visceral, or that um, sort of energetic contamination we got from my mother or my father's fear of spiders. And when we were real little, you know, when that energy between child and parent is so strong and we just sort of picked up their unconscious fear of spiders. And so it's just like built in. But all of that can be purified out by just being aware in a non-judging way. Because in a non-judging way, then when perceptions come up, we see the helpfulness or unhelpfulness of the perception. We're not forced, because we have mindful awareness, we're not forced to believe the perception as the only truth. So she might have the initial perception that spider, danger, danger. So she's not even seeing spider. She's just seeing danger, danger, danger. And she can look through that perception in a sense, even though it may be the one with the most momentum, and see that actually it's just a photograph of this eight-legged creature. Please. Um, but for example, um, let me see how I can explain this. She is aware that the picture is not real. I'm trying to connect that to the whole talk as in um, being aware. Um, the, the thing that you said about the, making the bet trying to be aware and not be unskillful. Mm-hmm. She is aware, but she's still unskillful. She thinks she's aware. But just because somebody knows the difference, that that's just a photograph, 
doesn't mean that their mind isn't under the influence of the idea of danger, right? So she might have enough mindfulness to know that there's a photograph, but she doesn't have enough mindfulness to know that the perception of danger is just a thought, right? It's just a thought. That's all it is. And the, the thought might have an emotional, visceral feeling to it, but that's just a feeling. So there's a visual experience of the photograph. There's the thought, danger, you know, spiders are dangerous. And there's a, a conditioned, emotional, visceral feeling, maybe, of contraction, or that fight-or-flight syndrome gets triggered in the body. But wisdom will not be confused by all the different components of the experience. So that tightening in the body, if that gets triggered, is just that. It's just a physical contraction. Maybe there's some heat, right? So that's just heat. And then the idea of danger, well, that's just a thought. It's like a little red light. Danger, danger, danger. And okay, okay, that's just that. And the mind understands it. It understands the lawfulness given the way this mind's conditioned, when it sees this shape, then it has this visceral feeling and this idea, get the heck out of here. Right? So that's, the, that's what mindfulness has to do. It has, she has to keep working. So that's what I talked about. Mindfulness implies that the awareness, that wise awareness is sustaining. It's not just a moment of realizing that's just a photograph. It's a not forgetting that. Because what happens is, yeah, that's a photograph, but then the mind gets caught in the force of habit. The force of habit is really strong. I see several things in my life that are unskillful. I know they're unskillful, and yet there I do it again. Now, why is that? And I've been somebody doing this for over 30 years, every day for 30 years. Why? Because we have to respect the force of habit. Right, And we have to be in this for the long haul. Some things that are already relatively weak habits, they'll fall away pretty quickly. Other things are not weak habits. Right? And so we have to, but we'll see the slow wearing down, if we're steady, of every habit, even the most entrenched habits in the mind. Yeah, thanks for sharing that good example. So we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. We'll just take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. And thanks everyone for being here. It's always good to practice together, to come together like this. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.